All right, let's get to work. Organizing structure. You're going to have to work today. You're going to work. We got to lay some foundation for this series. Here's my organizing structure for you note takers. Three reasons to accept that Genesis is, in fact, the Word of God. Three reasons to accept that Genesis is, in fact, the Word of God. Number one, reason number one, the rest of the Bible views Genesis as historical fact. That's number one. The rest of the Bible views Genesis as historical fact. First point I'm trying to make here is that the teaching, or perhaps more accurately, the assumption of the rest of your Bible is that Genesis is true, that it's not myth, that it's not legend, that it is historical fact. Or let me rephrase the point I'm making as a question. Does the rest of the Bible view Genesis as fiction or does it view it as fact? Both the Old Testament and the New Testament deliberately root themselves back into the early chapters of Genesis. The Old Testament and the New Testament insist that they are a record of historical events. Let me just give you an exhibit. You're going to have to, if you've got your electronic Bible, that's easy. You're just going to move around a little bit. If you have your, your hard copy with you, and I hope you do, just flip to some scriptures with me. I want to look at Psalm 136. So flip to about the middle of your Bible and grabs Psalm 136. I want to use this. Francis Schaeffer, I was reading this week, uses this as a great illustration of the point that I'm making, that the rest of the Bible views Genesis as historical fact. Psalm 136, as soon as you get there, you'll, you'll recognize this psalm. This is a great psalm. It's a psalm that is exhorting everyone to worship the Lord, to give him the praise that is due his name. It just repeats over and over again that we are called to give thanks to the Lord. This is a doxology, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. The psalm praises God for his enduring and everlasting steadfast love. A side note. Aren't you thankful for the enduring, steadfast love of God in Christ Jesus? What that means is, even though you messed up this past week, God has been steadfast in his love towards you. He never changes. That's supposed to give you a sense of God. That's supposed to give you a sense of love and affection to God. You could never get to God on your own. You could never hold on to God on your own. But he's unchanging in his love for you. Amen? Praise him. But the psalm keeps calling on us to praise the Lord by providing reasons for why we should praise the Lord. 
Reason number one that he gives is God's work in creation. Look at verse 5. Look at verses 5 through 9. Give thanks to the God. Give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. Verse 5. To him. So he's giving us reason. To him who by understanding made the heavens. His steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters. For his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights. For his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day. For his steadfast love endures forever. The moon and stars to rule over the night. For his steadfast love endures forever. Do you see what is happening here? This is a reference to Genesis 1.1. This is a reference to the book of Genesis. And he's giving us reasons to praise and worship God. And the first place he starts is God's work and creation. You see it. Then, without any indication, he begins to write in a historical vein rather than a poetic. The poet gives us his second reason for why God is to be praised. And he starts, look in in verse 10. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt and brought Israel out from among them with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, What is he doing? He's beginning to lay out God's acts throughout history. He's saying, give praise to God for his work in delivering Israel from Egypt. This happened. We should give praise to him for this is what the poet is telling us to do. There's this natural continuity between the acts of God in creation and the acts of God in redeeming a people for himself. This means that Genesis should be taken as history. Now, let me just make an appeal to intellectual honesty because not everybody believes that Genesis is the word of God. What this... Psalm forces is an intellectual grappling with what I'm presenting here. That the rest of the Bible, Psalm 1 and 36 as example, views Genesis as historical fact. This would be an acceptable response. When I say acceptable, it's understandable. It's intellectually honest. One could listen to what I just said and say this. I believe, and maybe some of you would say this. I believe that the Bible shows Genesis to be history. But I don't believe the account. That's intellectually honest. I believe. You're showing me here that the, the writer of Psalm 136, as an example, viewed Genesis to be history, but I choose not to believe it. You can do that. 
Here's an intellectually dishonest statement. I believe that Genesis is profoundly profoundly and spiritually true and that the Bible teaches that it's true, but Genesis 1 through 3 is just poetry. It's just myth. It's just legend. That's not okay because that's intellectually dishonest. You can't say that the Bible presents something one way and then say, but I think it's not what the Bible says it is. You can't have both. So you got to wrestle with these things. That's not to say, and we're going to talk about this, that Genesis is an easy book to understand. I didn't say that. What we're talking about is whether the, whether the rest of the Bible actually views Genesis as fact or fiction, as, as truth upon which we can base our lives. And I'm saying first reason to accept that Genesis is in fact the Word of God is that the rest of the Bible views Genesis as the Word of God. Number two, this is my favorite part of the sermon. Jesus views Genesis as historical fact. You know, you always say, uh, we say it on Family Fellowship, we, when you're doing Bible study and you ask a question and, and, and kids will just spout out Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is always the right answer. That's why this is my favorite part, because I'm asking the question, what was Jesus' attitude towards Genesis? What was Jesus' perspective on the book of Genesis? Or, to phrase it another way, did Jesus consider the accounts of Genesis to be historical fact? That's a really good question to ask. And and we can go looking for an answer to that question. That should help us. If Jesus doesn't view it as historical fact, then I don't want to view it as historical fact. But if Jesus does view it as historical fact, and I'm a follower of Jesus, then I should view it the way that he does. Matthew 19. That's the very beginning of the New Testament. Pharisees came, Pharisees were religious leaders of the day, who, by the way, did believe that Genesis was the word of God. They came to Jesus asking him a question, and the question was about divorce. And so they're saying, can a, can a man divorce his wife for any reason? Can a man divorce his wife for every reason? This is what the Pharisees were asking Jesus. Matthew 19, verse 3, And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered. Now, how did he answer? The first thing he said is, have you not read? And let me just tell you that that was a slap in the face. (laughs) If there was anything that a Pharisee was known for, it was reading the Bible. 
If it was anything, if you, if you put it the list of things they were good at, they knew their Bibles. They had memorized huge chunks of their Bibles. So when Jesus says, haven't you read, he's sticking it to them right before he gives them the answer. Have you not read, and let's look where he goes, that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. And he said, and he said, therefore a man, and he's quoting scripture, shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus is quoting from Scripture, and you, as followers of Jesus, should know the Scriptures that he's quoting from. Does anybody know where those Scriptures come from? That's an easy question. I'm preaching on this today. It comes from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. His answer comes from Genesis 1.27 and from Genesis 2.24. If you flick back to Genesis, I'll read it to you. This is what he's quoting. Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And then he quoted from Genesis 2.24, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Jesus obviously thinks that Genesis can be understood as historical fact. Mark 13, 19. Just, you don't need to go there now. But Jesus speaking, he spoke of the beginning when God created the world. This is a reference to the book of Genesis. Now, let me just tell you what I think to be wise. If you have the opinion of a person Verses over and against the opinion or position of Jesus, I'm going with Jesus. I'm going with Jesus on this one. So if Jesus views Genesis as historical fact, then I think it was to, to go with Jesus. There's an unwillingness, I think, on the part of Christians, there should be an unwillingness, to do the Thomas Jefferson, I call it, to do the Thomas Jefferson on your Bible, which is to take a sharp knife and cut out every section that you disagree with. Cut out every section where you see something supernatural, where you see something miraculous, where you see something that is hard to believe or hard to accept. If you do that, you will gouge your Bible. If you eliminate the supernatural out of your Bible, you won't have much left. And we must be wary as Christians of eliminating sections of our Bible that we find difficult. Because if we rule that Genesis 1 through 3 can't be, can only be understood as myth or legend, then what other parts of our Bible should we only understand as myth or legend? It will never stop. Your foundation of your faith will begin to erode. 
My faith is built on the Word of God. But we can't prove these things. We can't prove that, that the Bible is inspired by God. We're reasoning through these things. But how do we know? Well, Hebrews 11.3 tells us, by faith, the writer says, it's by faith that we believe these things to be true. It's by faith that we understand that the universe was created. By faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. It's by faith that we know these things. I just want to look at Hebrews 11 and read that first that verse 3 to you. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are invisible, that are visible. By faith, we understand these things. There's a, there's a, a recognition that we need faith in order to understand that God's word is true. And we know from the scriptures that faith is a gift of God. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God. Now, this is where I want to just make a couple comments. How are we doing? <clears throat> the essential truth that the writer is here talking about, by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God. That's the essential truth. Not... What he's not getting at is in the, 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 that God created in literal 24-hour days versus creation days. There's different opinions on this. There's really smart people who love Jesus who believe in literal 24-hour days of creation. There's really smart people who love Jesus that believe those days represent a longer period of time, often referred to as creation days. What the writer is saying, we're not getting tripped up on those things. What the writer is saying is that by faith we understood that God was the one who did it. Not how he did it. We can disagree over some of those things. God spoke the universe into existence. That's the essential truth. And that is understood by faith. If that part is a myth, then the whole Bible's a myth. You see, you can't pick and choose, or your, your, the foundations of your faith will begin to crumble. We want to know how things work, and that's good. Engineers in here, you love that. I'm raising your hand. You love to know how things work, but God does some confusing things and he doesn't always explain them to us, even if you are an engineer. Some things we can't understand. Some things we can't prove scientifically. Here's an example. Paul wrote that each of us is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Each of, us, each of us, the scripture tells us that our body is a temple in which as Christians, if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit resides. Temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, if I brought a cardiologist in here and they laid me out 
on a something. <laughs> and they took a sharp knife and they cut me right open. And then opened my chest. And then they said, there's his heart. Grab his heart. They grab the heart and they slice it and they pull open the heart. Where's the Holy Spirit? Is the Holy Spirit in there? Are we going to find the Holy Spirit in, in, in my ripped open chest cavity and heart? No. Is he there? Is he there? Yes, he is. But we can't prove it. By faith, we believe that we are indeed the temple of the Holy Spirit. We can't prove inspiration of the Bible. We receive it by faith. And as we read God's Word as Christians, our faith is strengthened and our confidence in the Word grows. It's like goes like this, right? You just keep reading God's Word. By faith, you understand a little bit. Then you read it, and He strengthens your faith, and you start to understand a little bit more. So that's my second reason for why. Three reasons to accept that Genesis is, in fact, the Word of God. Number one, the rest of the Bible views Genesis as a historical fact. Number two, Jesus views Genesis as a historical fact. Number three is this. Genesis is part of Holy Scripture, which is regarded as spiritual, as historical fact. Genesis is part of what the Bible refers to as holy scriptures, and the Bible receives them and regards them as historical fact. Look at 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.16. Paul wrote 1 and 2 Timothy to, you guessed it, Timothy. To Timothy 3.16, in speaking about God's Word, he says this, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God, that the woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. When Paul says the Scripture is breathed out by God, a lot of your translations say that the Scripture is inspired by God. I like the way the ESV translates this a little more literally, that all Scripture, Paul is saying, is breathed out, is the byproduct of God. God goes, and out comes the Scripture. Okay, He's saying that all Scripture, all Scripture is breathed out by God. When Paul wrote that, what was he referring to? When he said all Scripture, well, if you do the dating on this, about the time that he read, wrote that letter to Timothy, you'll find that almost all of the books of the Bible were completely written at the time that Paul wrote this to Timothy. So when Paul said all Scripture is breathed out by God, all Scripture is inspired by God, he was referring both to the Old Testament and the New Testament. 2 Peter, verse 1, 21, he says this, Peter says, For prophecy never came by the will of men, will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. 
When the Bible says that all Scripture is breathed out by God, it means two things. It means that the Scripture is authoritative, and it means that the Scripture is sufficient. When I say authoritative, you can look the word up. What does that mean? If you're an authority on a subject, you're an expert on the subject. There's a certainty. Authoritative means a certainty of knowledge. The Scripture is authoritative in the same way. It's also authoritative in this way. It has a right to rule. Scripture is authoritative in that it has a right to rule over us because it's God's word breathed out. It rules over us just like an RA in a college dorm. Scripture is authoritative. Scripture is sufficient. What do I mean by sufficient? It gives us all that we need to know for salvation for trusting God, for following Him, and for obeying Him. It doesn't give us all that we need to know about nuclear physics. That's not its its intent. It doesn't give us all that we need to know about medicine. It doesn't give us all that we need to know about biomechanical engineering. It doesn't give us all that we need to know for these things. It gives us all that we need to know to believe, to rely, to obey. It's sufficient. Scripture is authoritative. Scripture is sufficient. Listen, the primary purpose of the Bible, do you know what it is? Think about that for a second. The primary purpose of the Bible is not a rule book. Some of you view the Bible as a rule book. Thanks for your honesty. It's not, the Bible's primary purpose is not to tell us how to live. That's not the primary purpose of the Bible. The the primary purpose of the Bible is not for winning arguments with people who disagree with you. It's not the primary purpose of the Bible. What is it? What's the primary purpose of the Bible? The primary purpose of the Bible is to tell us all that God has done for us in Jesus. Say amen. The primary purpose of the Bible is God telling us his redemptive story. What's his redemptive story? It's all that God has done to save sinners through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the primary purpose of the Bible. We really can't know how to live until we know what God has done. We can't know what to do in response to him until we know what God has done. We can't do for God until we know what God has done for you. Do you understand this, church? What we do always rests upon. Don't forget this. It's so easy. I get up in the morning and every day I start reading the Bible the wrong way. I start reading it as a rule book. And that's not the intent of the Bible. What we do always, 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 always rests upon what God has done. Our doing is a response to the grace of God that's been shown to us through Jesus. Amen. 
The Bible's primary purpose is to tell us all that God has done, and he begins to tell that story in Genesis 1, verse 1. Now, two closing thoughts. I've given you three reasons that Genesis, that we can accept that Genesis is in fact the Word of God. Let me repeat. The rest of the Bible views Genesis as the Word of God. Jesus views Genesis as the Word of God, an historical fact. Three, Genesis is part of Holy Scripture, which is regarded as historical fact. Now, Paul, let me just tell you something. Paul, in this section that he wrote to Timothy, he's talking all about Scripture. And then he starts to talk about the the times in which Timothy lives. And he tells him that the time is coming when people won't endure the Word of God. We, I started out with the opening illustration. Timothy was living in times when people, the time is coming that people wouldn't regard the word of God as the word of God. We live in times where people don't regard the word of God as the word of God, and they won't endure it. So, so, so Paul is telling Timothy, you got to hold on to the word. You got to just keep, you got to make the word your anchor. You got to hold on. You got to keep preaching the word because what's going to happen? Well, people won't endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. So you go looking for someone that'll itch that scratch, that'll say what your itching ears want to hear. And sadly, there are a lot of churches that even in the name of Jesus are not preaching the Word of God as the Word of God, but they're preaching what we all want them to preach. Paul's telling Timothy, no, you got to stay on this. you got to stay on track, man. you got to preach the Word of God. So he tells him that there's a time coming where people won't want to listen to it. And he says the time is coming when people are going to turn away from listening to it. And they're going to wander, some translations say drift, into myths. And drift into myths. An embarrassing story. And I'll close with a few thoughts of application. Once, before I knew a lot about how the ocean worked, I got caught in a riptide. You ever get caught in a riptide? You know what I'm talking about? If you get caught in a bad riptide, there's a reason. Obey those signs. Like if they say riptide today, you better either know what you're doing or you better not go swimming. I was on a boogie board, you know. So I was on a big board. I was on a boogie board with a bunch of my friends. And we went out to, to catch some waves. And we got caught in a riptide. Now, what a riptide do is it wants to drag you out to sea. And when they're strong, it doesn't matter how hard you paddle, you're not going to make it into shore. Now, word to the wise. If you ever get caught in a riptide, don't try to go right to the beach. Paddle, paddle this way until you get out of it, and then you can go to the beach. So I just, that one's free of charge. That'll help you if you ever get in a jam. I didn't know this. 
I didn't know I was caught in a riptide. I only knew that I wanted to get back on the beach with my family, and the other two guys that were with me wanted to get back on the beach with our family, and we couldn't. Like, put your head down. Just go. Let's just go. Let's just paddle. Paddle, 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 paddle. Exhausted. Look up. The beach is further away. We were out there for like an hour and a half. I'm waiting for my family to notice. Where's that? It looks like he's in trouble out there. No? Well, maybe I take, should take that as, as, as a, a, a word of encouragement. That they, weren't, they weren't worried about me. And they knew Dad could deal with it. Dad wasn't sweating it, but Dad wasn't going to make it with his approach. So this was the embarrassing moment. The embarrassing moment was when I saw the Baywatch vehicles pull up onto the beach and some lifeguards with long flowing hair looking like Fabio have to come out to rescue me. This is pathetic, people. This is a bad display of fatherhood and masculinity when you have to get rescued by a guy who looks like he's off the film set of Baywatch. I wanted to say, I don't need you. I can do this. But he came, these guys came back. They came swimming out with flippers on. And I will say that makes a big difference. <laughs> but they came swimming out with flippers on. They attached, they, they threw me a rope. I'm like, what's this guy going to do? He throws me a rope. He says, grab on. And I'm like, what? You're not that big. You know what I mean? Like, what are you going to do? He threw the rope. I grabbed a hold of it. And he lunged back and started swimming backwards with those flippers. I'm telling you, it was all I could do to hold on. This guy was moving us so fast towards the shore. What's my point? People drift. You are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the one I love. You will never drift closer to Jesus. You will always drift. Culture will always pull you and cause you to drift away from Jesus. The Bible is a lifeguard of truth that will rescue us and keep us from drifting. Careful listening and reading of the Word of God, careful listening to the preaching of God's Word is the lifeguard that's going to keep you from drifting into myths and legends. Amen? Let me just give you a couple tips. Write these down. These are some tips on how you can prepare to listen to the God's Word preached on Sundays. I'm going to give them to you fast. Bring your Bible with you. Number two, read it. When the preacher's reading it, you read along with him. Number three, listen to what is being said. Number four, I'll put these somewhere else for you guys in our resources. Get some sleep on Saturday night. Don't stay out until all hours of the night and then think you're going to get something out of preaching. You're falling asleep. One of the pastors even makes decisions, and I respect him for this, but he makes decisions about the things that he watches on Saturday night, the kinds of movies that he watches, because he doesn't want to watch anything that would take his soul away from God, but would actually prepare his soul to receive from God. Take notes. 
Kenny's Corner this week. Check this one out. First time guests took notes while I preached last week. It'll blow your mind. Take notes so you can review them. Write down what the Spirit of God is saying to you. Try to apply the Word of God to your own heart. Try to help someone else apply it to their heart. Help your kids. Help your spouse. Help your friends. The last one, I lost track of the number. Pray for your pastors who are preaching. Pray and ask God to help them. Genesis serves some great purposes. One, it forces us back into the origins in the matter of our own thought values. It forces us to this. Has God spoken? Has God spoken here? You answer that in the negative, and all is chaos. You answer that yes, and everything that follows becomes increasingly clear. Amen.